0: And that is my prayer for you today, and for me today, that our hearts would be full. Our hearts would be full of Christ. It is no longer I, it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Amen? Well, the question for the day is, how do we know? How do we know that the resurrection happened? How do you know That the resurrection occurred on the third day that the tomb was empty and that Christ rose from the dead. This is not a question that the Bible shies away from. In fact, the Bible hits it head on. It deals with this issue. What if he didn't rise from the dead? Paul hits this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes this. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. We are to be pitied more than all men. You get the gist of what he's saying here? He's saying that if Christ did not rise, then this sermon I'm about to preach is useless. And then he goes on a few verses later, and he says something even stronger. He's basically saying it would be a fraud uh, if we were to live in this life for the Gospel if indeed Christ was not raised from the dead. You may hear, you may have heard someone say something along the lines of, well, you know, if, if God doesn't exist or if Christ was not really raised from the dead, then this system... This religious perspective of Christianity is a great thing anyway. The Bible will have nothing of that. The good news of the Gospel and the central, uh, the central message, the central hinge, one of the center points of the Bible and of the Gospel is that Christ did indeed rise on the third day. It is good news. And there is hope. And the Bible is calling us to believe in His resurrection. So what I want to do today is look at, at four different reasons or four different evidences for the resurrection. And the first one really comes out of experience. The first one even comes out of the video that we just watched. And that is that there are literally billions of people who are Followers and believers in Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Going all the way back to that first Easter Sunday morning. That passage that Brian read from uh, for us just a few moments ago. Beginning with those disciples and going forward all the way today, there are literally billions of people who are witnesses to His resurrection. On the planet today, there are two point two billion people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus. Is that astonishing? It's almost a little, kind of depressing, too, because our world should be moving along a lot more beautifully, if that were the case, right? Are you with me here this morning? Are you guys awake? 2.2 billion people profess faith in Jesus. So before we even get into the Word of God today, number one, I know that Jesus is alive because of the testimony of billions of people. But there's a problem with this. Uh, There's an insufficiency with this reason uh, to validate the uh, authenticity or the veracity of Jesus' resurrection. And that is that lots of other folks have their testimonies too. Uh, I've even heard testimonies from atheists. And they follow kind of a pattern. And they say something like, you know, I grew up in such and such a church and believed in such and such a way. And then over time, I was able to break free from those bondages and recognized that there is no resurrection, that there is no God, and I found peace. So the testimonies of God's people going all the way back to that first Easter Sunday morning are important. And they're a piece of the evidences or the reasons for his resurrection, but they're insufficient. And so we're going to see some other reasons in this uh, passage. We're going to look, uh, we have four pictures of what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning, four Gospels and four different pictures. We're going to limit ourselves today to Luke's picture. And we're going to look at the passage just following the one that was read today, where we have these two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, the other one unnamed, full of doubt, full of discouragement. They're on their way out of Jerusalem. They're leaving the place they should be staying to gather with full of hope. But they're headed home. They have basically given up. We're going to look at this passage together. Let's bow our heads once again and pray before we get into God's Word. Father in Heaven, we thank You once again for the Word of God. We thank You for its clarity on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray for any of us here today. Whether we've been believers a long time. Or whether we have never come to know Christ. I pray that our faith would begin anew today. Or would be increasing. In the validity and the veracity. and the reality of the resurrection. So we ask that you would use your word today. To increase our faith. Or to begin it anew. Teach us, move us, uh, show us what you would have us to see by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of those Bibles in the chairs in front of you. It's on page 885, 885, and we're going to uh, pick it up in verse um, Verse 13. This is the second event recorded in Luke's Gospel on that first Easter Sunday morning. Uh, the women have gone to the 11, as Brian read, and, and there's confusion, and they think that, that these women were speaking nonsense. And that's the first event. And then we come to uh, verse 13. One of the longest events recorded in all of Luke's Gospel, this, this second event on that first Easter Sunday morning. Let me begin uh, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So here we're we're told in this first paragraph here, beginning of verse 13, that these two uh, of them... And uh, these are not two of the apostles, these are not, um, th- th- these are two of Jesus' followers. We're going to learn one of their names in, in a few verses, and they uh, are headed home. They are headed out of Jerusalem, where all of the believers had been gathered. And it says in verse 14, they're talking with each other about everything that had happened. And And you can just imagine them talking about the feedings of the thousands of people, of of the resurrection of, of or the raising of Lazarus, of the healing of the sick, of the blind receiving sight, of this amazing darkness and things that supernatural things that happened at the time of Jesus' death. They'd be talking about all of these things. And as they are walking, Jesus Himself comes up and walks along with them. Notice in verse 16 it says, they were kept from recognizing Him. And so we we uh, a careful reader of the scriptures would ask we should ask ourselves here what is keeping them from recognizing him and there's uh, only a few options here it could be uh, Satan I don't think that's the case we don't have any indication in this passage that it's Satan keeping them it's not other disciples Uh, Jesus is glorified, and, and so his glorified body, human body, would look different, but I don't think it looks so different that he wouldn't recognize them. And so I think for some mysterious reason here, God himself is keeping them from recognizing who Jesus is. As he comes into their midst, as they're headed out, confused and debating and discussing what has gone on in Jerusalem. Let's come back and pick it up here, see what happens. Verse 17. Uh, He asked them, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like that voice cracking there? Did you appreciate that? I always seem to be losing my voice on Sundays. It's just kind of how it how it rolls with me. Uh, This question here, to Jesus, uh, is more than dripping with irony. This is like Niagara Falls irony. Uh, did 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 you catch that? So Jesus walks in their midst, and they say to him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? They are asking the one who has done all of these things, The one who was there at the beginning and who was involved in the creation of the universe. The one who knows all things, they're asking him if he's just a visitor to Jerusalem and what has been happening. Verse 19, what things he asked about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their hope is gone. Continuing on here, And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Verse 22, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So Cleopas and his his friend, we don't know who this friend is. Could be a man, could be his wife. Some commentators think this could possibly be his wife. They're skeptics at this point. They're skeptics. Him they did not see, it says at the end of verse 24. They don't know what has gone on. They are confused. They were ready for this Messiah, for this Savior, to come and redeem Israel. They were not expecting Him to be crucified, for Him to be tortured, for Him to be there on the cross as a criminal with criminals on either side of Him. All right, so I said our first, I'm going to give us four uh, evidences or four reasons in believing in the resurrection. The first one is because of the testimony of uh, billions uh, of people. And the second one we're going to see here in verses 25 through 27. Uh, Let's take a look at at those uh, verses together. So he says to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. So we have a rebuke here from the Lord. We have these confused disciples leaving Jerusalem, wondering what's going on. Jesus is in their midst, and divinely God has kept them from recognizing him. And he calls them foolish in verse 25. And that they are slow of heart. Did you catch the reason why he calls them foolish and slow in heart? Because they didn't recognize all that the prophets have spoken about the Christ. These were Bible people. They knew their Bibles. But going to, all the way back to Moses and then through the prophets, Jesus basically gives them a Bible study here. And explains What they have missed, and what they have missed uh, in large part are the Old Testament prophecies and predictions about the suffering of Jesus. And so this is the second reason, the second evidence that we have for the resurrection are the Old Testament predictions about his death, about his resurrection, about his coming. And these disciples, like all of the disciples who are still back in Jerusalem, have missed a lot of this. They have missed passages with the clarity uh, of Isaiah 53. This familiar passage, let's look at it together. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. This is one of the clearest passages about the suffering of Jesus, of, of what we now call the substitutionary atonement, that he would die in our place for our sins upon the cross. One of the clearest passages in all of the Bibles, not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. And I would have loved to have been there for this Bible study that Jesus gave to these two uh, disciples on the way, showing them, I don't know if he took them to Isaiah, I don't know where all he took him. Uh, where he took these two, but he took them to places To show them a biblical truth that they have neglected. And if we are discerning readers of Scripture, when we read passages of Scripture like this, we we shouldn't go, and and the pride in us and in myself goes, you know, I think I would have been able to recognize those things. I think I would have been able to see this clarity. Clarity. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we don't speak like that out loud, but, but anybody else think like that sometimes? Like, you, did they not get Isaiah 53? All right, I got one in the back here. I got, I got two. I got two. Uh, w- but that's not how we should read this passage. Uh, this is a human condition that they have. And it's a human condition that we share. And the condition is that we have a tendency to emphasize certain portions of Scripture and neglect others. And the portion that they are interested in not neglecting is we're ready for this Messiah to come, to set up camp in Jerusalem, to bring all justice to the world uh, so, so, that, so that we have a righteous king ruling to redeem Israel, not only out of bondage, but the entire planet to enter into the kingdom, to have God reigning and ruling. That's what we, that's what we remembered. They were ready for the second coming. They were ready for, for judgment of the wicked and the, and the uplifting of the righteous and the oppressed. But they missed this section. And so, what we should be asking ourselves with sections of Scripture like this is, is what, what, what am I missing? Um, what, what biblical truths have I neglected? What biblical truths have you neglected in the Word of God? My own life, I think, of um, the last few years, uh, the Lord has really opened my eyes since uh, since we've come here to Cornerstone in my own neglect of the emphasis of caring for the needy and for the poor and for the burdened, and how that is to be an important and sacrificial and personal part of the lives of Christians. And the Lord has been growing me in that area, and this is one of the areas where I have, have neglected biblical truths. So, uh, so keep that in your mind uh, this morning. One of the takeaways from today, uh, what biblical truths have I neglected? Uh, we see very clearly Cleopas and his uh, friend or his wife or whomever it is, we don't know what they have neglected. And Jesus gives them this, this what must have been just an amazing, amazing Bible study would have loved to have been there let's come back to the next section here we find our next evidence or reason beginning in verse 28 so we've had this mild rebuke and then verse 28 as they approach the village they're on their way to Emmaus uh, that most likely their home as they approach the village to which they are going Jesus acted as if he was going farther but they urged him strongly stay with us for it is nearly evening the day is almost over so we went in to stay with them. So this was just uh, protocol. This was just the way uh, culture worked back then. If you you know, uh, join somebody walking on the road to a particular village, nighttime is coming, you didn't presume that you're going to stay with them or reside with them. They had homes or they had a destination in mind here, and Jesus doesn't. So out of courtesy and respect for them, uh, just to be polite, he's acting as though he's going further. And they say, no, uh, we want you to stay uh, with us. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, so he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So this is the climax of verse 31. We go back up to verse 16. They were kept. This divine passive is the way grammarians refer to this passive tense verb in verse 16, where they are kept from recognizing Jesus. I believe by God they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And now we come to the climax of this section of Scripture. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him as he is at the table with them, breaking bread and now they have come to know jesus they have come to believe in the resurrection they have become converted they have become born again they have understanding they have eyes to see and this is uh goes by a variety of names but if you have repented of your sins and you have believed in jesus you have had your eyes open too, to his glory You have had your eyes open to his beauty and to his majesty and to the reality of the resurrection that this happened. That this isn't just an alternate worldview that gives us a nice way to live in ethics, but this is what life is all about. This is life itself. And they recognize that this risen Savior is in their midst. I just find it fascinating that he had them understand what the Scriptures taught before they recognized who he was. He wanted them to see from the Scriptures. Not from his appearance or from his hands in this passage. He wanted them to see from the Word of God. He wants you and I to see from the Word of God. And the way that we see The authenticity, the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Word of God involves having spiritual eyes that can see, transferring from darkness into light. We see this all throughout the Bible happening to God's children, to God's people. We see it happening to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, the, the, The darkness goes away and he sees who Jesus is. This one he has been persecuting is now his Savior and his Lord. We see it here with Cleopas and whomever he's with. I'm just very curious who he's with. Anybody else curious uh, who he was with here? In my study uh, this, uh, this week, I, I'd never come across uh, one commentator who just said, I think it was his wife. I think it was his wife. And so I looked at the grammar and the language, and the, the grammar doesn't tell us whether this uh, has to be a man or a woman. The other person, it could be a man. Uh, it, it, it could be a woman but they have experienced this conversion. They have experienced this new birth, and they have eyes to see. And this is a, a powerful moment on that first Easter Sunday morning. It has been uh, recorded uh, by artists throughout the centuries. Uh, this is a, a Rembrandt here where we have Cleopas and not his wife, clearly, but his friend with him uh, at a table. That was kind of a joke, but nobody really nobody really got that. Um, that that would not be a beautiful wife uh, there if that was his wife on the right. So they're sitting at the table, and uh, as I read about this uh, this week, um, this is the moment of of, uh, of verse 31 where their eyes are opened. And so he's painted this uh glowingness around Jesus. He looks a little silly to me there, but I don't really know anything about art, so I can just go ahead and say that. Um, but you've got this glowing around Jesus' head. We have uh, these two men seeing him, and Rembrandt has invented uh, a servant who's there. And uh, although, if I were uh, Rembrandt's dad, I would have told him to leave the servant out. He's not in the text. I would have leave leave him out. But he's put the servant in. But there's some gospel theology here uh, with this servant, because uh, if you can if you can tell, the servant is like collecting. The the, the uh, food or collecting the, the plates. And the servant here doesn't have eyes to see who Jesus is. Uh, he's there. but But the miraculous work of conversion, which is a work of grace, it's not anything that you or I figure out or do, has happened here to Cleopas and his friend, but not to the servant. And it is a work of grace, Back in, on the first Easter Sunday and on whatever kazillionth Easter Sunday today is from then, the gospel works in the same way. It works by a miraculous work of conversion, a miraculous work of grace that gives us eyes to see that Christ has indeed uh, risen. I've been reading a, a biography of uh, John Newton. Uh, who gave us uh, the most famed hymn in all the uh, the world, uh, Amazing Grace. And his life is just a a rich, rich story. And Newton also experienced this dramatic opening of his eyes, this conversion, this amazing work of grace. Uh, He wrote this, I think it was in his diary. He said, The reason for God's mercy is unknown to me, but one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, I now see. And God has been in the business of giving people eyes to see ever since that first Easter Sunday in regards to the resurrection and in regards to faith in to God, God all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to uh, the beginning. He has given people eyes to see. And the response, the response that we should have is to be thankful and to worship. We don't understand why, even in a gathering like this, some people, they're just just glued into the text and God is working in their hearts and they are just impacted and other people are looking at their watches and, and they're ready to go. Why? I, we, we don't know why God doesn't awaken us all to, to the, with the enthusiasm and the love uh, that we want to see and we want to have for Him, but He does it. He does it here. He does it today. He's done it in my life. Has He done it in your life? Has He done it in your life? It is a glorious glorious thing. So we know because of the testimony uh, of the new birth. So these uh, are all kind of related. How do we know that the resurrection happened? Billions of people. I'm focusing on the number, the quantity of people there. We know because of the Old Testament prophecies and clear predictions about his death, about his resurrection, about his life. And we know also because of the miraculous conversions that he has been doing throughout all of history, especially since that first Easter Sunday morning, in making people new and giving them eyes to see, we call this, theologians call this regeneration. It's summarized in Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Final uh, section of uh, Scripture here, and final reason Final evidence for believing in the resurrection comes uh, through verses 33 through 35. Let's come back and finish up passage here. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. It's interesting here, this allusion to Simon. We don't have this recorded, but that's something that happened there on that first resurrection Sunday. But notice their response here. They, they turn directions, verse 33. They were headed to Emmaus, presumably to their homes, discouraged and full of doubt. They should have been in Jerusalem with all of the eleven and with all of the other disciples, and they turn around. And they go back. And they go back full of joy with a message of hope to tell the eleven, it's true. These things that we heard that we were doubting, it is true. And you can just imagine their enthusiasm in describing walking with him along the road and then seeing him break bread, seeing him praying before a meal. A common meal, I think, is what this was. And they are just full of joy. And they want to worship. Just a couple things before we close um, out, of this, out of this final point. Uh, the final one is we know because of the testimony of a changed life. We see a changed life here in these two. They, they repent, as it were. Their thinking changes from doubting and confusion to clear-headedness. They believe in the resurrection. They believe that He is Savior. Their worldview is, is now crystallized. They are, not, they are not confused any longer. And so they have changed physical directions. They have changed spiritual directions. And they have gone back to proclaim the gospel to, of all people, the apostles. And so this is a good uh, note for us to end on. Uh, this Easter Sunday... The Lord is looking for us uh, to live the same kind of lives, a life that's marked by repentance, that's turning a constant turning from our confused thinking, from our doubts to clear thinking that's informed by scripture and that we would have a message full of hope to share with others as Cleopas and his friend did as they returned to Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads together and ask God to help us to live out this gospel. Father, we thank you that death could not hold him, that the grave could not keep him down, that our Lord Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. He took our place. Every one of us deserved the punishment that he received on that cross. But he was the recipient of the justice of God so that we might experience His grace and His mercy. I pray on this Easter Sunday morning, Lord, that our faith would have been increased. I pray that our joy would be increasing and that we, like Cleopas and his friend, would be marked by constant turning, turning from doubts, turning from confusion, turning from trying to live worldly lives, the living lives that are centered on the person and work of Jesus. Lord, help us to be ready to share with whomever about our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue in song?